0: Title of my sermon this morning, it should be in your bulletin. It is Genuine Faith, Genuine Faith. We're going to look to the Lord in prayer this morning as we ask his help to understand uh, this passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, we thank you just for how good you've been to us, God, for you have revealed yourself through your Word. So I pray, God, that as it is open right now, as I prepare to preach it, pray that you would speak through me, that you would only speak your words, for your words are the only words that give life. So I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith as we walk through this passage. pray that you would convict us. I pray that you would remind us of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So imagine with me for a second the Apostle Paul. He walks through those doors. He sits with us, observes our worship. He then takes the next couple of days, maybe weeks, months, maybe even a year or two, closely examining your life. What do you think he would see? Would the Apostle Paul be able to praise God for your faith? You see, the Christian life is a life of faith. The Bible declares that we walk by faith and not by sight. But what is faith? How can we define the concept of faith? Well, I love the definition that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So according to this definition, faith is to be confident. It is to be assured that whatever God has promised in the future will certainly happen because God always delivers on his promises. So this morning we're gonna look at the concept of genuine faith. We're gonna do so by looking at the lives of the Thessalonians. If you recall back in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, he's on his second missionary journey and he's making his way through the town of Thessalonica. He spent three weeks preaching in their synagogues, declaring that Jesus was the Christ that he was Israel's promised Messiah. The Apostle Paul proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and be raised three days later. Now, and upon hearing his preaching, the Thessalonians, many of them believed. They were, they were persuaded that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And thus, this new local body of believers was formed. Church of the Thessalonians consisted of some Jews, some Greeks, and even some prominent women. The Thessalonians, they no longer regarded Caesar as Lord. Rather, they now have come to regard Jesus Christ as Lord. And as a result of this newfound faith in Christ, they faced heavy persecution. This caused Paul to fear for their spiritual health. So what does he do? He sets out to encourage them to perseverance. Because Paul understood that suffering is a great obstacle for faith. So he writes this letter to encourage them to persevere under whatever discouragements, afflictions, trials they may encounter in the way. When we find ourselves in a trial, the question that usually comes to mind is, will my faith survive this trial? I think this question was on the mind of um, Joseph as he was being kidnapped, sold into slavery in Egypt. I think this question was on him mind of Moses as he's tasked with leading the people from Egypt through the wilderness. I think this question was on the mind of David as he's being pursued by King Saul and he's hiding out in caves, fearing for his life. I'm pretty sure this question was on the mind of Dr. Martin Luther King as he's sitting in a Birmingham jail cell, observing all the injustices going on around him. We already established that the Thessalonians were being persecuted. Some of their friends were dying, and they needed to be exhorted in their faith. Maybe you're here today, and your faith is being tested by some type of momentary affliction. And I say momentary because all suffering only lasts but for a moment. But nonetheless, maybe you're here, and you're under the weight of some great burden. Maybe it's physical sickness, depression, trauma, guilt, marital problems, anxiety, Confusion, uncertainty about the future. We are living in a day and age where so many people are just walking away from the faith. So, my question to you is how do you know that the current trial you're facing won't overtake your faith? How do you know you'll persevere to the end? You see, one of my favorite teachers we find in the Bible is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or some people refer it to as the preservation of the saints. And this doctrine basically teaches that the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. They will persevere to the end no matter what suffering may come. And I think this doctrine is so encouraging because it reminds us that the same grace God gives us at the start of the Christian life that saves us is the same grace that sustains us all the way through the Christian life till we arrive in glory. My aim this morning is simple. I want to encourage you to encourage us to be a people of faith and to persevere in that faith. You see, perseverance is the distinguishing mark between genuine faith in Christ and a counterfeit faith in Christ. Genuine faith in Christ will persevere to the end. Genuine faith in Christ won't be overtaken by any form of suffering we may experience in this life. And that's really the gist of my whole sermon, the main point is that genuine faith will persevere. Yeah. Now, I know someone in this room may still not be convinced. You might be thinking to yourself, how can you be so sure, preacher? I'm in, I'm in the fire right now. You don't know the trauma I've been through. My grip of Christ might be, I, I feel like I can lose it at any moment. How can you be so sure? Well, I'm so sure because God is the one who preserves the faith of his saints. He has not lost one soul who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So I guess the next question is this. Since genuine faith in Christ can't be overtaken, how do you know you possess a genuine faith? Well, for the rest of our time, we're going to examine some marks of genuine faith. We're going to do so by looking at this passage. Now, this list is not exhaustive, but I do think it will be helpful as we examine the authenticity of our own faith this morning. Amen? Amen. Apostle Paul, he starts out in our text by thanking God for this group of believers that God has formed into a church. Look at verses 2 and 3. They read, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see three Christian virtues that Paul commonly mentions. Faith, love, hope. Now for the sake of our time, we're going to zoom in on the virtue of faith. Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 reads this way. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This brings us to the first mark of genuine faith that we see here. Genuine faith is a gift from God. According to verse 4 of our text, Paul understood that the faith possessed by the Thessalonians was only possible because God had ch- has chosen them. He has gifted them with the gift of faith. As one theologian stated, he said, faith is a gift of the Lord to undeserving people, the outworking of God's electing grace and atonement of Jesus for his own. Now, this brings us to the doctrine of election, which simply teaches that God has the right to choose who will be saved. God is not coerced. He's not manipulated to make a choice by the best of men in their deeds. God has determined before the foundation of the world who will place their faith In the Lord Jesus Christ and thus be saved. You see, in salvation, God is the one who initiates. Man doesn't choose God apart from God first choosing man. The very fact that you're here today believing in the Lord Jesus Christ testifies to the fact that God has set his affections upon you, that he has set his affections and redeeming love upon you. Let that sink in. And this choice was before you did anything either good or bad. This choice was before the foundation of the world. God didn't take into consideration our success, our accolades, a certain office you would uphold, the amount of money you have in your bank account, the amount of charity work you do, the amount of church services you attend, the number of times you took the Lord's Supper, the number of times you recited the sinner's prayer. None of those things factored into, the, into God's decision in choosing a wretched sinner like yourself, like myself. This is why the scripture says that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Well, what, actually, what is the gift? Salvation is the gift. The faith is a gift. The Bible testifies that we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. Spiritually dead people don't have it in themselves to believe the gospel. Faith is not something that we muster up within ourselves. It's not something that we bring to God. I'm reminded of the old "Rock of ages where it says, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. We yeah. see, God provided the Thessalonians with the ability to place their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you're believing in Jesus today, he has gifted you with that same ability. So what should our response be to these things? Well, one, it should teach us humility. Church, don't you know there's no grounds for boasting in ourselves? Don't you know there was a time when you didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? But now you're actually here believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? God in his mercy provided us with the gift of faith. Therefore, may our boast be in him, in him alone. But two, this should teach us to cherish our faith. We tend to cherish things that are important, that are significant, have value. Just ask my wife about her pen collection, right? Like, she collects the best pens. I can't even get the good ones. i got to use, like, the common ones. You know, like the the big, the regular, like, little ball, ballpoint pen. But my point is this. If we cherish things like that, right? How much more should we cherish the gift of faith? Brothers and sisters, make every effort to nourish it, to strengthen your faith. Take time to cultivate your faith by spending time with God's people, worshiping on a Sunday, by showing up to a midweek Bible study. Devote yourself to prayer, private devotions, reading God's word. Devote yourself to uh, seeking out a a discipleship and, and accountability. These are means of grace that God uses to help us uh, nourish and strengthen our faith. So faith is a gift from God. Let's look at verse 5. This brings us to our second mark of genuine faith. Verse 5 reads, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. According to Marion webster conviction is defined in this way. As a strong persuasion or belief, a strong persuasion or belief. Those in the room who drink coffee, you might be persuaded that coffee is like the best thing ever. That's, that's just not my thing. I'm, I'm good with a glass of orange juice in the morning. That's, like, that's, that's, that's enough. Those who run, my runners in the room, you might be persuaded. You might be fully convinced that Nike, Asics, Brooks make the best running shoe in the world, my health care workers. You might be persuaded that John Hopkins Hospital is the best medical institution in the world, at least in Baltimore, right? (laughs) My sports fanatics, you might be persuaded that Michael Jeffrey Jordan is the best basketball player who ever played the game of basketball. That's my persuasion. That's my conviction. Don't try to debate me on it. You would just be speaking on on deaf ears. Like, I, I cannot be convinced otherwise. But you might be a LeBron fan, and that's cool. He's making quite the case for himself. My point is this, though. We all have our beliefs. We have our convictions. We even get in little silly debates on Facebook over our beliefs, our convictions. You see, as Christians, when it comes to spiritual things, we're fully convinced that the gospel is the absolute truth. That is the absolute truth truth. Now, if you're here today, you're new to Christianity, you might ask, well, what is this gospel that you guys are always talking about? What is this gospel that makes a man happy? Well, let me enlighten you. The gospel is the good news that Christ Jesus has come to save sinners. You might ask, well, why is that good news? It's good news because apart from Christ, man stands condemned before a holy God. You see, man, I mean, God made man upright, but man chose to rebel. We willingly choose to disobey God. And as a result of our disobedience, we stand condemned before a holy God. And the last time I checked, it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God and be judged. You see, apart from Christ, we are hopeless. We are undone. This is why the gospel is good news. You see, Christ had regard for our helpless estate. He saw that we were in a situation, in a condition that we were unable to remedy, that we were unable to fix. This Jesus came to earth born of a virgin, lived a life of personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to God the Father, stood in our stead, became our substitute as he went to that Roman cross, died in our place for sinners was buried, raised three days later, and this Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father in power and glory. But one day, this same Jesus, the way he ascended into heaven, will descend from heaven, and he's coming to save those who are eagerly awaiting him, who are anticipating him. But for those who are not, he's coming back to judge them. You see, the gospel is not just something that we hear, but it actually comes with a response. It calls us to respond. And just what is that response? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's the second mark that we see here of genuine faith. Genuine faith responds to the gospel in belief. It believes it. The Thessalonians were fully convinced that the gospel was the truth, and so they responded in faith to the message that was proclaimed to them. I wonder who among us has yet to place their faith in Christ for the salvation of your soul. Look, to, to neglect your soul is no small thing, my friend. Walking out of here today without trusting in Christ will cause your soul great harm. I stated earlier, salvation it's a gift. A gift is something that is given to you. You don't work for it, it is freely given to you. I remember some years ago, my job, they had like uh, employee appreciation and they were like giving out these different gifts. And they, they, they were giving out gifts like uh, tickets to the Oreos. It's not really that much of a gift. Well, you know what, I take that back. I take that back. We got a bright future ahead of us, okay? We got a lot of young talent. Ain't that right, Casey? But they were giving out tickets to the Oreos, gave out uh, like a fleece jacket and some other, other things. Now, it was my responsibility to go to the office, sign for the gift I wanted, and receive it. Now, if I didn't go into the office, where do you think my gift would have stayed? At the office. It was my responsibility. It was my coworkers' responsibilities to go in and get our gifts. Now, we talk about the gift of salvation, it doesn't work quite that way. We don't fill out an application. We don't get baptized. We don't join the church. How do we receive this gift? We receive it by believing. Believing the good news about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done for us. It is your responsibility to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Someone here might say, that's too easy. My response, okay, prove us all wrong in belief. But you see, here lies the problem. It's hard for self-righteous, powerful people to be totally dependent on someone else for righteousness because they already think that they're righteous within themselves. But it's equally hard for those who think that they are too far gone that they've fallen too far beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. Don't you guys realize that faith is so unnatural for us? My plea to us this morning is simple. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You will not be put to shame. For Christ has said himself that all the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes I will in no wise cast out, meaning I will never cast out the one who comes to me. In faith. Take him at his word. Now someone might walk out of here today and actually claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first, let me say, praise God. The angels are rejoicing that you have turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me just give you a word of caution. If you truly believe in Jesus, there should be some real transformation That takes place in your life. I'm not talking about the transformation that comes from seeing a therapist, partaking in Whole 30, going vegan, working out, all of that stuff. I'm not even talking about transformation that comes from adopting religious practices, coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, giving offering. And all of these things I just mentioned are good, except maybe going vegan. I'm sorry, I just can't. I'm sorry, I can't do it, but if that's you, hey, to to each his own. But the transformation I have in mind is a spiritual transformation. You see, this transformation begins not outside in, but inside out. And where where does this transformation come from? Well, according to verse 5, this transformation comes from the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians, they believed the gospel, and they gave evidence that their faith was genuine, because of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Paul said that the gospel didn't just come in word, but it came in power, real transformative power. This kind of power to transform who we are at the core is only possible through the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced this kind of transformation? Have you seen evidence of fruit in your life produced only by the Holy Spirit? You see, according to God's word, the Holy Spirit produces fruits such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do these characteristics accompany your faith? So genuine faith is a gift from God. Genuine faith responds to the gospel in belief. Let's move on to verse 6. We see another mark here. Verse 6 reads, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This brings us to our third mark of genuine faith. According to verse 6, Genuine faith suffers for living a godly life. Genuine faith suffers for living a godly life. But there is no greater compliment that can be given to a Christian than that of being a godly individual. Yeah, you might be a great leader in God's church, a talented musician, a great parent. You might have uh, a certain zeal for Christ, but none of these things matter if at the same time you're not a godly individual. Living a godly life is never easy we live in a broken, fallen world full of darkness. So it's never easy. It's not comfortable. Living a godly life according to the word of God Apostle Paul says for those who desire to live a, to live a godly life will be persecuted. They will suffer. That's a fact. And I'm, I'm not telling you to like go out and look for suffering and look for persecution. Trust me, it's enough to go around. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, It's coming. Wasn't this true of the Apostle Paul? Apostle Paul, makes, he faced much suffering for living a godly life. Listen to the Apostle's own words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24-27. through 27. And In this passage, he's, uh, he's recounting his hardships that he had to endure. Listen to this. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. And I'm not the smartest person in this room, but that just doesn't sound like a nice cozy life. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like a life of comfort. And can we not forget the life that our Lord Jesus Christ lived when he was on this earth? You see, no one lived more of a godly life than the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, no one suffered more than Jesus Christ. For the scripture tells us this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, He came to his own people, yet his own people didn't receive him. He was accused of being a blasphemer, a false prophet. He was opposed at every turn by the religious people of his day. Ultimately, you know the story, he was put to death. The Thessalonians faced the same opposition from their own countrymen the moment they received the word of God. Their family members, friends, co-workers were not pleased with their newfound faith in Jesus they weren't pleased with the godly life that they were now living as a result of their godly life the Thessalonians were joined to a great cloud of witnesses and thus they became imitators of Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ and of all those who have held fast to the faith amongst much affliction this morning March 19th 2023 are you holding fast to the faith As you suffer, are you holding fast to your faith this morning? You see, genuine faith is always tested, and suffering is one of the tests. Now, this poses a question. Just how were the Thessalonians able to endure such suffering? How was Paul able to endure such suffering? How was the Christ able to endure such suffering? How were Christians who were slaves in the 16th century able to endure the horrors of slavery? Well, the answer for our question is in page six, is in, uh, in verse six. It says this, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is how we are able to endure afflictions, persecutions, trials, and tribulations. It's with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon once said, "'Blessed is the fact that Christians can rejoice even in the deepest distress. Although trouble may surround them, they still sing. And like many birds, they sing best in their cages.'" So as you sit in the fire of affliction, are you able to sing for joy? As you get a not-so-favorable report from the doctor, as the life you planned for your children has not turned out like you envisioned, as you struggle to make ends meet, as you struggle through problems in your marriage, as you struggle through problems in your singleness, as you struggle with uncertainty about the future, as you struggle to care for elderly one, are you still able to sing for joy? Let me let you in on a little secret. If you possess, if you are a Christian, that means you possess the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that means it is a reality that you are able to sing for joy no matter the circumstance. Yeah. You have the same joy Paul possessed, the same joy Jesus possessed, the same joy yeah. that Thessalonians possessed. Oh, church, may we always be singing for joy. I'm reminded of the hymn, It Is Well, it says, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows rose, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Quick application. Suffering well is such a powerful witness to unbelievers. You see, when we maintain our joy in the midst of trials, non-Christians, they take notice. Unbelievers are left confused. They're left scratching their head, wondering why you haven't succumbed to the same temptation that they have. Why haven't these trials and tribulations overtaken you like it has overtaken them? They, they see us go through those same trials, yet not losing hope. This opens up opportunities to share our faith. The Apostle Paul, he puts it this way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So suffering well is a powerful witness to unbelievers, but suffering well is also a great encouragement believers. I can't tell you the number of times my heart has been encouraged by another brother or sister in the faith who suffered for a season but I saw them still maintaining their joy. I know some of you have suffered through depression, through cancer, through the loss of a family member. I can go on and on and on. My faith is strengthened when during a Sunday morning service I can look to my right, I can look to my left, I can look behind me. And I still see you singing with joy, still holding on to Christ, yes, still declaring Him to be good in the midst of your trial. You see, as the Thessalonian church maintained their faith, as they suffered well, they became an example to believers, to other believers. Listen to verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. It reads this way So that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This brings us to the fourth mark of genuine faith, which is... Genuine faith is exemplary. Genuine faith is exemplary. A man once said, I will not give much for your religion unless it can be seen. Lamps do not talk, but they do shine. As our faith is on display, as we live out our faith in word, in deed, church, our faith should be attractive. So, something to consider. Is your faith a good example for others? Does your faith draw people to Christ? Or is your faith a stumbling block for people? Does your faith encourage others? Or is it a discouragement for others? You see, the Thessalonians were once a people who worshiped dead idols, following the same course as everyone else. But by the grace of God, the same Thessalonians stepped outside of the cultural norm, abandoned their idols, and turned to serving the true and living God. The life of faith the Thessalonians live got everyone's attention. Their non-Christian family members, friends, were probably thinking, like, what, what has gotten in to these Thessalonians? They're no longer worshiping many gods. They're going around saying that there is only one God, Jesus Christ. They're no longer greedy. They're no longer selfish, no longer sexually immoral, no longer contentious. What happened to them? The Thessalonians were the talk of the town as they evangelized the people around them. But check this out. They did more than just share the gospel. They commended the message with the godly lives that they lived. Their life of faith gave credence to the message. As as one theologian once stated, he said, the mere preaching of the gospel has done much to convince and convert sinners. But, the lives of the sincere followers of Christ as illustrative of the truth of these doctrines have done much more. In other words, practice what you preach. Practice what you believe. Oh, church, let the light of Christ shine. Let it shine in your neighborhood, at work, on vacation, at church, at the gym, around your dinner tables. Let it shine everywhere and at all times because the world is watching. And our life should reflect who God is and it should lead to his praise and his glory. So, genuine faith is a gift of God. Genuine faith responds to the gospel and belief. Genuine faith suffers for living a godly life. Genuine faith is exemplary. Let's look at... The last mark of genuine faith we see here. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 reads, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Genuine faith eagerly anticipates Christ's return. During World War II, it was said that the underlying strategy was to ruthlessly crush civilian morale so that those being bombarded would abandon their hopes and fighting spirit. You see, tough circumstances always cause us to lose hope. As you think about recent events within this last decade from a pandemic, injustice, violence, natural disasters, corruption, poverty, death, fill in the blank. These things have proven that this current decade has been brutally challenging. Where does one find hope during a time of suffering? Where does one find hope when it appears all hope is lost? Today, we might define hope as a desire for something to happen, sort of, sort of like a wish. I hope I will get a job. After service, I hope I will have time to take a nap. I hope my check will last to the end of the week. You see, biblical hope has a different connotation than how we normally think of hope in our day and age. Biblical hope is certain. Biblical hope is much more powerful than a mere wish or desire. The Thessalonians were certain that Christ would come back for them. You see, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when rightly understood, should be a great encouragement and comfort for us as we endure trials of this life. I believe this is why the Thessalonians never lost hope. Because their eyes of faith was always looking at Jesus. They never lost their way because they were always anticipating their Lord's return. You see, when we take our eyes off Christ just for a second, we quickly get in trouble. We quickly sink back into despair. Wasn't this true? The Apostle Peter? You remember Peter, he's Walking on water, everything was fine. He's walking towards Christ. His eyes are on Christ. He takes his eyes off Christ for one second, and what happened? Started to sink. It's the same way with us. What are your eyes focused on? Have you been so in love with this world that you have forgotten about Christ? This world is not our home. We are not earthly citizens. Rather, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, there are only two groups of people in this life. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. Those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. Those who are Christians and those who are not christians There's not a third group of people that we can place people in. Now, on the one hand, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is a great comfort to Christians, but it is a great distress for those who are not Christians. You see, there is coming a day when God's wrath will be poured out on this earth. If you're not a Christian, there will be no place to hide. We've been walking through the book of Revelation uh, for Bible study. Revelation uh, chapter 6 testifies to this truth. It says this in verses 15 through 17. It says, the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? In the day of judgment, will you be able to stand? This might be one of the most important questions to consider today. And you will do well to give it some serious thought. You wanna know where non-Christians end up going wrong when they answer this question? They look inwardly at themselves. They look at their deeds, their morals, their virtues, their accomplishments, their accolades, and they think that all that they are, all that they have achieved, will be enough to stand before God on that great and final day. They trust in their works. They believe that their works will be enough to deliver them from the wrath to come. Well, the Christian is one who looks outside of himself. He looks to Christ for deliverance. He looks to Christ for refuge. He looks to Christ for safety. He looks for Christ to be a fortress He looks to Christ to be the ark of salvation. I know we've been talking about Mark's of genuine faith. Let me make this clear. Faith is not what saves us. Because everybody has faith. Rather, it is the object of our faith. And that object is Jesus Christ. The one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or may we always be rejoicing in him. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Amen. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his power to save. We thank you for the fact that you have opened up our eyes, that you've given us the gift of faith, to believe, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. I pray, God, that as we have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that our faith would be active, that it would be at work, that it would be a great encouragement for others, that we wouldn't put any stumbling block before anyone except Christ. Father, I pray that your gospel will continue to go forth. I pray that, you would, that it will continue to go forth not only in our words, but also through the life that we live. And I pray that you would get all the glory for this.